You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. If you want to read along, I'm going to be in Isaiah 2, starting in verse 5. It's not exactly the most pleasant passage in the world, as the prophets sometimes tend to be. But bear with me, it will get better. Okay, all right, here we go. Uh, This is on the heels of last week. So last week, we talked about the mountain of the Lord. Throughout ancient culture, it was expected that you found deities up on mountains because... Those were closer to the heavens and, of course, the separating point between heaven up there, earth down here. Mountains are just over the peak of where they touch, so they might be able to use them like stairways to get down. It's part of the reason that you see stories about meeting God on mountains all over throughout the Bible. Uh, Up on when Abraham goes to sacrifice uh, his son before God stops him, that was on a mountain. He was going to meet with God on a mountain. Of course, we have Moses runs into God on the mountain, sees him up there, stories like that. So um, with that in mind, we now get to the lower parts where you find humanity trying to treat itself like mountains and Isaiah telling them to humble themselves. So I'll read it and then we'll go from there. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands so that what their own fingers have made to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled. And each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust and before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and all the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? That is a pretty intense passage. 
But here we see, you know, if God has his mountain and it's rising up and all pride that we are to have is to have it for God, then man and all of its mountains should be made low. And a lot of times, that's not the case with humanity. We're running around, these tiny little people, trying to amp up everybody else. Look at me. Look at how great I am. Check out this post I made on social media. This thing I made, it. let me dump some advertising into this and that. We are all about self-interest, especially in American society, all about trying to promote ourselves. I've heard it said before, that kids these days in school, when you ask them what they're going to be when they grow up, they're like, well, I'm going to be famous. <laughs> like, that's the plan. Of course, what else would I do with my life, you know? As though we have any control over that. So I want to give us some context, remind ourselves of just how small we are as God comes to tell us to be small, to, to get us in context. So let's start with Earth, okay? Let's talk about its equatorial radius. So when you think of it in that light, it's really not that big. Yeah, it's huge to us, you know, like 1208 Greenwood is just a small little chunk of that planet. But as far as how big our planet is, it's just not that much. Uh, it's still bigger than some planets in our solar system, don't get me wrong. We have uh, Mercury and Mars. The Earth is about twice as big as them, so if we showed a comparison, the Earth would actually look pretty great. And um, We're actually slightly bigger than Venus. It's not too far off from us. So we're not at like the bottom of the ladder here. But we will see that we're not anywhere close to the top as well. If we were to zoom out a little bit more into our solar system, we would come across Uranus and Neptune, which have an equatorial radius of 15,000 miles. Just imagine approaching that planet on a spaceship after leaving Earth. You'd be getting close to it, and it would take up so much of your view. Four times, nearly four times the size of who we are of our planet. And that's, you know, significantly bigger than us tiny little humans running around everywhere. <laughs> and that's still nothing, though, because uh, Saturn, if we took a look at that, Saturn's actually got an equatorial radius of about 36,000 miles. So Jupiter, we zoom out a little bit more, we see Jupiter at 43,000 miles. And once we look at that, you know, I'm doing my best to kind of scale here, but the Earth is getting kind of invisible in comparison to just how big our universe is. And we're not even looking at our universe so far. This is just our solar system. We are getting tinier and tinier. And yeah, Jupiter is the biggest planet in our solar system. It's uh, actually, it's almost 11 times bigger than us in radius. <laughs> So if you were to stack 11 Earths on top of each other, you would finally be getting to a size that just equaled the length around the globe. That's not all, though. Uh, we're just talking about equatorial radius so far. If you want to say, like, how many Earths could we fit inside of Jupiter alone, there would be 13,000 Earths that we would cram inside of it. We are starting to feel smaller and smaller and smaller, but still not small enough. Actually, inside of Jupiter, we could cram all the planets we just looked at. All inside of there. Our entire solar system inside of the mass of one spot. 
But Jupiter, even though it's one of the bigger ones in our solar system, it's still not the biggest thing in our solar system. That would be the sun. And you still see Earth up here, right? You see that tiny little pixel? <laughs> right off to the left, right below Jupiter. It's, it's getting tinier and tinier. I mean, Jupiter's so big alone that we can actually fit one to two of us inside of just a storm system that they have on Jupiter. The Great Red Spot. It's 150 years old as a storm system, and we can cram Earth twice inside of it. But then when we get to the sun, we realize just how tiny we are, a speck, a pixel on that entire screen hanging out in the corner right there. The sun, we can fit 1,300,000 Earths inside. And so we continually shrink more and more and more. And that's still not anything because our sun is not a particularly massive star. We've actually been looking at the star cluster. uh, And one study found dozens of stars in this one star cluster that are over 50 times the mass of our sun. Which would shrink us down to just being invisible. Nine of the stars in that star cluster are even 100 times the mass of our sun. Sun, And when you combine all the stars in that star cluster alone, they shine 30 million times brighter than our sun. One of the stars in that cluster is the most massive star in the known universe. That doesn't mean it's the biggest in terms of radius, though, so let's talk about that. Our sun is about 432,000 miles around. Remember Earth, 4,000? Sun is 432,000. But we found this star named U.I. Scuti, which has a radius of upwards around 1,700 times our sun. We keep on shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. This is possibly the largest star that we have on our record, but because it's hard to kind of make full adjustments when you're looking that far out in space, we know that uh, it's hard to know for sure. My glasses keep fogging up, so I will pull this down at this point. (laughs) We're still not looking at the biggest objects in the universe, though. When we're on a quest to try to figure out how big it could get, there is what we call the Boss Great Wall. And this isn't exactly an object, but it's more like a bunch of galaxies uh, kind of lined up side by side, stretching across for 1.2 billion light years. Just to be clear as to how far that is, I actually don't know what that number is. <laughs> 36, 9, 12, 15, 18, 21, 22 digits long is how many miles long just this great wall is. It's built out of 830 galaxies. We haven't even looked at a galaxy yet. We've looked at our solar system. Our solar system's a part of something much bigger called a galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And usually that's where we kind of cut off our brains. We can't comprehend much more beyond that, right? (laughs) Milky Way galaxy, that's all we need to know. That's the whole universe. No, actually, scientists have now divided up what they look at in the sky. They believe there are two trillion galaxies out there. So in case you ever wonder why Jamin wrote a book wondering, could aliens be real? I'm partially just like, why is there two trillion galaxies of stuff out here if God's just made just us sitting on a 4,000 equatorial radius planet? 
Of course, we'll never know the answer, but I wrote 100 pages if that's helpful for you to sort that out. (laughs) Um, Nonetheless, we now stare at two trillion galaxies making up our universe that God has created, and we continually shrink more and more and more. And, And now we get a little crazy. Some scientists would say that there's this possibility that if our universe is a bubble, and you just keep zooming out as far as you can until you get to the edge of the universe, and you just pop right through a wall. On the other side, you might look out from that wall and see more universes all around. In other words, the uni and universe maybe isn't right. Maybe it's multiverse, since uni would mean one. This, of course, a lot of scientists are like, okay, now we're just messing around with, uh, you know, fiction or with uh, um, kind of, uh, I forgot the word, starts with a P. What? Philosophy, that's the word. <laughs> some scientists, <laughs> here's completely up. No, this is what some scientists would joke, though. It's like, mm, now we're just dealing with philosophy. Are there more universes? Are there more of us out there? Could it happen again? Things like that. So not everybody would go for this, but of course there is, uh, some scientists would say, actually this solves some of the heat issues we see in the cosmos. This could mathematically account for that. Whatever the case may be, even if there's only one universe of two trillion galaxies of which you are only 4,000 miles on the equatorial radius taking up not even one mile inside of this building right now, you have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over the last few minutes. (laughs) We are not grains of sand on the world, on the universe scale. We are molecules or electrons or Higgs bosons. We, we just, smallest that you can think, that is how much life that we take up on, on, in the universe. <laughs> There's not much to it. And that's kind of the mad irony. You have the God who made all of this. And then us tiny little bosons, us grains of sand walking around like, I'm cool, check me out. <laughs> When you see the pride that we exhibit sometimes, sometimes we just need a reminder of just how small we are. Of just how unmagnificent we can be. But at the same time, that's not the case. Because the God who created all of this, the God who gazes across the universe or the multiverse... The God who had the power to make all of that, make us, breathe life into us. The Bible tells us that he cares about us, which is vastly different from the other religions of ancient times. The gods made you to serve them, your slaves. And yet the Christian story, the Hebrew story, is that God made you not because he needs you, but because he wanted you to exist. That you aren't nothing from a scientific perspective. In fact, you are one of the greatest of all of his creations. And as far as it goes with the earth, you are the greatest of all of his creation. You have been created for a purpose. And that purpose is out of his love. And the mission is to cultivate the earth, the 4,000 miles that we have, to make that look like God would have it look, a mixed the giant two trillion galaxy universe. 
God, uh, God's eyes look to and fro throughout the earth, the Bible says. You can now max that out. God's eyes look to and fro beyond the universe. And despite all of that space, some of it empty, some of it filled, he sees you. And you're of importance to him. In fact, you're so important to him that he would go the distance to make himself small. Something the other gods would have never done. No, we don't care about them. They're disposable. They just do our bidding. And yet the God who actually created all of it says, they need a hero. They need saving. They've got sin. They've offended me. So I'm going to go fix that. Humans don't even think that way. They've offended me, so I'm going to go fix that. No, we usually close ourselves off to those who offend us until we've built up such a wall that we can't even get past it anymore. And yet God drops the barrier, humbles himself to the ultimate humiliation of putting on flesh. The God of all of that, putting on flesh, coming to our tiny little speck of a pale blue dot amidst a giant universe, just because he loves you, just so he can come and save you. God makes himself small for us. And so should we. I mean, yeah, God did some pretty miraculous things, being in flesh. You know, he walks on water. He heals people left and right. He multiplies food. There are some crazy things that God does when he comes to earth. But you know what? If the news reporters of Jesus' time were paying real close attention, they would, they'd be tracking him down, the paparazzi outside of all the windows, waiting for that moment to... To, to frame him or put him in a bad light. And instead, what they would catch is, he, there he is in the window, they're taking pictures, and he's sitting in there with prostitutes. And, and you're thinking, oh, I know where this is going. We've heard this story before. And instead of the kind of unlove that usually happens in these situations, there's the God of the universe who made all of this sitting with the outcasts, talking with them hearing them, moving them deeper to God's love. There he is with the tax collectors, the ones that nobody would give any hoot about because they're constantly robbing you. They have legal abilities to walk into your house and say, give me all your money in the name of the law. And there's Jesus meeting with them, looking past that incredibly broken frame. First, the, the paparazzi comes up and they're thinking, yeah, here we go, this is a shot. Jesus is embezzling. He's taking all the money. And then as you pay attention, you see the guy through the window, a tiny little guy. Earlier, you got him climbing up a tree on, on video. You didn't know what was going on. Tiny little guy. And he's like, you know what? I, I owe people money back for what I've done. So I'm going to repay seven times the amount that I took. Camera guy's like, what on earth is going on here? <laughs> And everywhere he goes, he keeps taking these pictures, waiting for the frame, waiting to show just how much this guy's like any other uh, popular guy with all the stuff that he can have. But time and time again, Jesus proves himself. Until the ultimate thing happens, you're like, there's no way he's coming back from that. He gets a death sentence. He's put on a cross. It's capital punishment. It's the electric chair of their time. Who's going to follow the criminal? 
But then as you start putting the sources together, the news article is released. You know, we followed Jesus around and we checked this out. And, and guess what? He was framed. The religious people of our town framed him to get him killed. And, and, and we waited for him to, like, if that was the case, for him to prove his point. But apparently he stayed quiet when he was in court. He suffered on our behalf. And, and here's the shot we have of him where he's whispering something. And, and we had a mic just close enough to catch it. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who is this guy? And the Christians call him God. He's Jesus. Because the God who made all of that, the God who made the universe, the multiverse, the solar systems, the galaxies, despite how big it is, he cares about you. And he cares to humble himself to the speck of dust we are with all of the mortal body that we have and all the things that can go wrong with the mortal body, let alone just the humiliating everyday things that happen with our bodies. God brings himself down to that level. The God they never thought would leave the mountain. The God they never thought would leave his place overseeing the universe comes all the way down to a speck of sand because he cares about you that much. And then he lives the smallest life ever. See, we need to catch a glimpse of what it means to be humble. We need to remember that we're no more than five-ish feet tall, except for some of you. <laughs> we are tiny, and even those who are taller than us are tiny on the grand scale of things. The science leads us to humility. Carl Sagan, who was a popular scientist, he was like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of, I don't know, 80s, 90s? I don't know. It was way back in the 20th century that I got that much right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, this guy, um, there's a picture that's taken. It's called the pale blue dot. And it's this beautiful picture of us all waving at a satellite. You can't see it. Satellite's just getting out of view. There's one speck of the earth left, and the whole world was told, hey, look up and wave at a certain time. We're taking a picture. <laughs> And as he reflected on this picture of this tiny little blue dot out in the nothingness, the abyss of space, he writes this poem, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he's more or less like, you know, maybe if we remember how tiny this pale blue dot is and how tiny we are, perhaps we would be a little more kind to one another. Perhaps we would remember our smallness, our littleness. None of us are as big as we think we are. That in all the greatness that we can muster and all the pride we can muster, all of that is actually anti-God. It's anti-Jesus. So when God shows up, he spends all his time on the floor. And the highest he goes is on a cross. When Satan takes him up on a mountain and tempts him to take the world, he says, no, it's got other plans. So as we reflect on this uh, meekness, on this littleness, I wrote a poem this weekend that I'm just going to share with you as the band comes up. It's something that you can reflect on. Snow-capped mountains have always intimidated the lowly. 
What measure do we hold against the splendor of such mighty pillars as howling winds pierce through the wrinkles of their aged faces, through the crevices of fractured rock broken by the weight of time? The abode of the gods, they stand afar, stretching into the heavens, a stairway into the domain that flesh would not travel and could not survive even if it desired. What god would dare to descend the cliffs? What star would humble itself, no, humiliate itself by basking in the unpresence of humankind? For what is man but an embellished ego, glittering, locked up in a trophy case with nothing more than the fragility of thin glass protecting him, shining one second and gone the next? If a glimpse of an angel is enough to throw him into terror, then how firm could he stand should one touch his skin? Every flake upon his hand, nothing more than the dust decomposing in the sunlight that graces the barren shelves of his bones. We are no more than slaves, so we're told. Machines constructed by the beings of heaven, instructed to carry out the tasks they themselves are too powerful to stoop down to complete. Bees serving a queen that has no regard for them. What is humanity that the heavens would be mindful of them? What value can the mortal and disposable creatures of the soil offer when they bear no wings to be clipped? They can hardly ascend a tree, let alone a mountain. What God could care about the beings below? For we have a wealth of poverty, a prosperity of fallenness, an opulence of moral decay. We drown in the luxury of absence, tempting no being to make the trek downwards, but repelling them further uphill, beyond the firmament, like the opposite side of a magnet. So then who is this God of gods and Lord of lords? Who is the champion the Christians hold so dear? Who is the father of all the lights of heaven? And why would the creator and master of all the sons of God take note of lowly ground dwellers? Who is this deity they say became man for them? What ridiculous audacity to proclaim that God wears flesh. What foolishness. The God of the universe sleeping in a feeding trough, becoming a refugee lest a mere human snuff him out. Does God fear for his life? Does he fear for mine too? Who is this God that he would spend his life as a vagabond preacher, eating in the homes of the poor and scandalous, all the while sticking his nose up at the palaces of kings and scolding his own for their perceived greatness, their treasuries rich with the blood of widows and their hearts depleted of character? Tell me, who is this God? A homeless king of kings who has no place to lay his head, a poor lord of lords who has no coin in his pocket, a weak God of gods who is persecuted rather than persecutes. A God who stays armies of angels when they're completely at his will to command. Who is this God? What God cares to love enemies when the snap of his fingers can exhaust the very breath of life he breathes into them? What God cares to be graceful when he has no need of humanity? And what God would create a humanity of which he has no need? Who is this God? 
And why would the God of the cosmos care to send his mountain past the evergreens, deep into the chasm of the canyons, to dive further down and further into the depths of death itself, the underworld filled with the scowls and growls of beasts and wounded serpents? Who is this God that he would prefer to dig holes and favor a shovel over a carabiner? A God who sets aside his ice axe and risks, falls, bruises, calluses, and death. And what is humanity? That God should make himself even lower than it. That he should wash feet like a slave and pray blessing over his murderers, allowing capital punishment to be his magnificent destiny, whipped by the climbing ropes of humanity, a carabiner strapping him to a tree and an ice axe piercing his bloodied side. Who is this God that he should be counted as a criminal? What is any God that he might die and that any God might die for me? Who is this lowly God? And why do his followers still insist upon climbing mountains when he spent all his time digging holes? Just stand and worship with us as we make ourselves humble before the God of the universe.